Good morning, my name is Carmen. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 51, verses 10 to 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is David. The New Testament reading is found in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. What is the source of conflict among you? What is the source of your disputes? Don't they come from your cravings that are at war in your own lives? You long for something you don't have, so you commit murder. You are jealous for something you can't get, so you struggle and fight. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't have because you ask with evil intentions. You waste it on your own cravings. The word of the Lord. Morning, my name's Casey Converse. The gospel reading is found in Mark 7, verses 17 through 23. After leaving the crowd, he entered a house where his disciples asked him about that riddle. He said to them, don't you understand either? Don't you know that nothing from the outside that enters a person has the power to contaminate? That's because it doesn't enter into the heart, but into the stomach, and it goes out into the sewer. By saying this, Jesus declared that no food could, could contaminate a person in God's sight. It's what comes out of a person that contaminates someone in God's sight, he said. It's from the inside, from the human heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual sins, thefts, murders, adultery, greed, evil actions, deceit, unrestrained immorality, envy, insults, arrogance, and foolishness. All these things come from the inside and contaminate a person in God's sight. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and to work in our hearts. Lord, let the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you. And Lord, let these words that enter into our hearts be the very words of God, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. What does it mean to be pure? What does it mean to live with purity? What does it mean to be clean? Now, if you have any trace of sort of church background in you, maybe as a kid or just some, maybe an influence from a grandparent or grandmother, maybe at an, it was at an early age that you were introduced to sort of this expectation of purity. I was listening to a, a man tell me this week uh, in his very, very thick sort of southern accent, he was impersonating his granddad. And he said, granddad was the kind of guy who would say, boy, do you know if you're going to heaven or hell? 
And he said, now, now my grandmother was a little nicer about it. You know, she had the joy of the Lord. But he said from an early age, he internalized this sense that God was always checking how clean you were. How pure are you? And so he had internalized that purity or even God himself, God was sort of like the inspector, you know, kind of, if you've ever seen the movies about restaurants or whatever, I think of, we have four kids, so I think of like Ratatouille, you know, where uh, rats in the kitchen is all cute until you realize a food inspector is coming, you know. Uh, and, uh, but there's, it's, it's, that's our vision of God. God is the great sort of inspector to check up on how clean we are. And so purity is about conformity. Purity is about conformity to a specific set of rules. And either you color inside the lines or you are a dirty, rotten sinner. And so some of us, in the attempt to maybe shake that off, shake that off from our upbringing, shake it off from our childhood or whatever, have said, purity, schmurity, who really cares about this stuff? God is so loving. He just, he's fine. He doesn't care. He's okay with all this. Just, just as long as your heart is in the right place. I told you the story years ago uh, when we, I was working with the college ministry at New Life, a, a young uh, couple uh, came to us, and, and it, it was, um, they were sincere, but they were kind of new to the faith, and he said to me, he said, you'll never believe it. He said, last night, we just felt like it was time for us to have sex. And I said, yeah, I'm sure you felt that that was time. And he says, but don't worry, Glenn. He says, don't worry. We just felt in our hearts that God said it was okay, you know? I said, oh, tell me more, you know, and, and, and so maybe we're trying to shake off this kind of legalistic, heavy-handed thing of like, well, conform, 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 and so we say, you know what, my life is a mess, I don't color inside the lines, but God loves me anyway, you know. It's like my three-year-old daughter who the other day I was leaving for work and she said, Dad, I made you a card. And she gave me this, this coloring sheet that was sort of torn out of a book and she had colored just, you know, scribbled colors all over it. But of course, to me, from a three-year-old, it's the most amazing thing ever. And I was like, oh, thank you, Jane. What a wonderful card. And she goes, Dad, take it with you to work today. I said, yes, ma'am, you know. She's the youngest, but boy, she is in charge. And so we think, well, isn't that sweet? That's sort of what God is like. Like our lives are just a mess. We color outside the lines. But God really doesn't care, right? He used to care. He was kind of fussy guy in the Old Testament. And then he softened with old age. And so by the time we find God in the New Testament, he's like, no, purity. I mean, I used to be uptight about that stuff. But, you know, really, guys, whatever. Bacon, go ahead, you know. Uh, (laughs) Church jokes, okay. But what if purity is not about conformity, but about wholeness? What if purity is not actually about coloring inside the lines, but actually being free of infection? We use the word clean in that way as well. You come back from the doctor, you've had a thorough exam because they were concerned about certain things. You say, How, how'd it go? So, oh man, clean bill of health. Like, okay, great. Praise God. Thank God. Let's go celebrate with a big cheeseburger, you know. We use the word clean to talk about being free of any kind of abnormality or infection or, or, or some sort of um, um, 
thing that has gone wrong in our lives? What if purity is not so much about conformity to a particular standard of rules and is actually about being whole and being sound and being free of infection. We've been in this series here in the Gospel of Mark. This is part 10 of the series. And as we've gone along, one of the questions we've asked ourselves each week is, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus that Mark wants us to see? And so we've tried to highlight different parts of who he is. And we've seen him as the Son of God. We've seen him as the healer. We've seen him as the banquet host. We've seen him as all of these remarkable things. And recently, we realized that Jesus wants us to participate in his mission. Now, I don't know about you, but, but what quickly follows that uh, realization for me is the feeling of saying, well, God, do I really belong? Do I really have any business doing what you do? Do I really have any business speaking for you, speaking as one of your disciples, speaking as one of your followers? And you get the sense that maybe Mark knows that his listeners or his readers, it's possible Mark was uh, written as a play, very possibly, And so you get the sense that Mark knows, okay, listen, at this point we know that people are following Jesus, and so they're going to be wrestling with their own state of purity or impurity, cleanness or uncleanness. And so this chapter, Mark 7, is pretty much all about cleanness. And so we're going to meet today Jesus, the purifier. I would like us to look at three scenes in chapter 7. Three scenes in chapter 7. We're actually going to start with verse 18. The backdrop to this is the Pharisees have seen Jesus' disciples not washing their hands before eating. Now, now to us, that's like, ooh, gross. You know, you think of hygiene. And that was one part of Jewish purity laws, purification rituals. One part of it was hygiene, but really it was a complicated set of rituals that showed you've removed the world and the contamination of the world spiritually. And now as you were about to eat, this was now something you could receive from God. There was a whole set of complex meanings to these purification rituals. And so the Pharisees say to Jesus, hey, hey, um, your disciples, they, they didn't wash their hands before they ate. Is that okay? I mean, do you you really think that's okay? In their view, contamination comes from the outside. Contamination comes from the outside. To the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were convinced that contamination comes from the outside. And this is how Jesus explains it to his disciples later. And he said to them, then, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him. The world is not going to get you icky. It can't contaminate you. Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled, Mark adds, thus he declared all foods clean. This would become a big issue for the church later on. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. What? What do you mean, Jesus? What do you mean what comes out of us? What are you saying here? Verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The Jewish people of Jesus' day were so focused on taboos. Ooh, don't do that. That's taboo. You can't do that. <gasps> You've gone and contaminated yourself. Don't touch a leper. Don't forget to wash your hands. Don't do Because basically everything on the outside was there to contaminate you. This is a little bit 
like how some of us think today as Christians, that the world is going to contaminate you. Don't smoke, don't chew, don't hang with people who do. Right? Listen, I'm not going to do There's all this stuff out there. It's going to get me dirty. I don't want to just, you know. Now, some of that is true. Elsewhere in the scriptures, it says, don't be fooled. Bad company corrupts good character. Some of that is true, of course. But there is this underlying feeling that the dirty stuff is out there. I heard a preacher say recently, listen, this is a stinking, dirty, rotten world. That was his quote. Speaking to thousands of people. This is a stinking, dirty, rotten world. And I got good news for you, church. Jesus is going to get us out of here. That's what he said. Now, is that the hope of the gospel? That out there is all this stinking, dirty, rotten stuff. But woo can't wait till I'm going to fly away. Jesus turns it on its head and he says, look, if you're looking for stinking, dirty, rotten stuff, look inside. Look inside. It's not the stuff from outside that's going to get you. It's the stuff that's in you. Now, Ben Woody's over here. He's a contractor. Ben, I think you can verify this, but when you see a crack in a wall, particularly a wall that is at a key location in the house, you have reason to worry because that might mean you've got foundation issues, right? And so sometimes it's an, it's an exterior crack that you're like, oh, the problem is the exterior crack. And so you could patch up the exterior crack all that you want, but it's not going to help if the foundation is not sturdy, right? Jesus is saying, look, you're paying so much attention to bad behaviors, but the situation is worse than we feared. The situation is worse than we feared. The contamination is not out there. The contamination is in you. You're like, oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. I thought it was the stinking, dirty, rotten world. No, no. It's your heart. You see, sin is not just behaving badly, but desiring wrongly. I'm going to leave this up here and let you chew on this for a minute. Sin is not just behaving badly, it is desiring wrongly. Desires are like that foundation of the house that's way underneath the surface. You can't really see it, but it mat- when things, things start to shift and things start to swing and the floor starts to shift a little or a crack appears in the wall, all of a sudden you're like, we got problems. And so many times in church, We want to patch up the exterior problems and say, would you behave better, please? Just behave better. Jesus is saying, nah, man, it's far worse than that. Your desires are totally off. Sin is not just behaving badly. It is desiring wrongly. Somewhere in the 400s, there was a great theologian and church father named Augustine. And St. Augustine said it this way. He said, living a just and holy life is about loving things in the right order so that you do not love what is not to be loved. Don't love something that shouldn't be loved or fail to love what is to be loved or have a greater love for what should be loved less. You know what Augustine is saying? He's not saying there are bad things in the world and that's the source of sin. No, he's saying there's good things in the world and by loving the good things too much, that's how your life becomes a mess. I'm going to flesh this out just a little bit more, but one more quote from Augustine. This comes from his book, The City of God. Even good created things can be loved in the right way or the wrong way. 
In the right way, that is when the proper order is kept. In the wrong way, when the order is upset. What is this great saint talking about? He's saying, listen, there are good things in this world, created things, things that God made and that are good. But do you know you can assign to them too much love? We're not even talking about technically sort of idols. We're just talking about disordered desires. See, when Jesus says all of this stuff comes from within you, James would echo it later. James says, where, does, where do wars, where does strife, where does division come from among you? Don't say it's because of so-and-so. Say it's because of your own heart. Don't say it's because we got the wrong candidates and his rallies are rambunctious. Say it's because all of that stuff is in our hearts. Don't say it's out there. Say it's in here. Jesus wants us to know that sin is about disordered desire. As Augustine said, loving things that shouldn't be loved, not loving things that should be loved, or loving things more than when they really should be loved less. What's an example of this? Well, there's all kinds of examples. You think of friendships and relationships. Think of people who are always hurt by someone. A friend is always letting them down. Now, if they didn't examine those feelings, they would say, you know what? It's because Christians are a bunch of jerks. They're always just letting me down. They're horrible people. So, well, that may be true. And they're probably, most, what makes life complicated is actually many things can be true at the same time, right? So it can be true that they are jerks. But it can also be true that you have over-invested value in those friendships. And so you ask those friendships to give you things that they could never give you. You've loved something more, which should actually be loved less. And so then when it fails you, you're like, <laughs> you, you turn into the monster. But you're convinced, of course, that you're not the monster. They're the monster. They're just so mean. They're so rude. It's possible that we've loved this thing too much. Remember Bonhoeffer said, he who brings his vision and ideal of community to a Christian community destroys the community. <laughs> That's church, pretty much. I found the perfect church. Just stick around New Life downtown for a little longer. It's not so perfect. I know, hard to believe. I'm going to fail you. Someone will fail you. You're like, doggone it. I hate the church. Maybe you've loved the church more than the church should be loved. What about another example from our culture today? Uh, over the last couple of years, a number of publications have, mainstream publications, I'm talking about Rolling Stone, GQ, Vanity Fair, have released different articles about the destructive effects of pornography. And it's really fascinating when people are approaching the subject without even sort of a religious morality, but they're just saying matter of fact from, from their investigative research plus some sociological research, they're saying, you know what we've discovered is in, as, as pornography has been on the rise, actual sex has been on the decline. And then in their interviews with people, they're saying, you know what we're realizing is that the drive, the desire has actually declined in young people. 
And this is purely from a non-religious standpoint. There's plenty more we could say from a Christian framework, okay? So don't send me an angry email saying, how dare you insinuate that having sex is better than looking at porn? I'm not insinuating that, unless you're married. Um, But what the articles are saying, what the articles are saying is, (laughs) oh man, getting myself in trouble here. What the articles are saying is, by indulging our appetites, we've actually destroyed it. By indulging our appetites, we've actually destroyed it. We have said, sex is the ultimate experience of intimacy, therefore I must have the best sex every time with the most perfect person of all. And then you're like, well, I can't find the perfect person. And the thing is, is when I find them, there's all this drama. Oh, you mean they're an actual person? Yes! So I've discovered that it's just so much easier to let my fantasies create a non-living person where I can pour all of my appetites into that. It's called pornography and it's called artificial intimacy. Yeah, 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 that's my dream. And then all of a sudden you have people who, these articles say, who no longer know how to do real life intimacy. By indulging an appetite, you've destroyed it. This is Augustine saying, you've loved something you should never have loved in the first place. See, how does that change your view of purity? Purity is not about saying, you broke the rules. Purity is saying, you're sick on the inside. Something is out of alignment. Your desires are out of order, and it's causing a sickness in you. Jesus wants us to know the situation is worse than you think. The real problem is not contamination on the outside. The real problem is infection on the inside. Now, if I dismissed you right now, you'd be like, that is so depressing. The situation is worse than you think. Thank you, Glenn. Wow. Scene number two is in Mark 7, verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. And immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit If you're paying attention, it was unclean foods in scene one. It's an unclean spirit in scene two. Came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now this sounds awfully harsh from Jesus. But he's trying to say that he is Israel's Messiah. And so the bread that he's just given to the crowds, the the, the benefit of his life has to come first to the, the people of Israel. And through them, the idea was that by rescuing Israel, he would then rescue the rest of the world. But of course he knew Israel would crucify him. So he himself would have to be Israel. He would have to take up Israel's mission in himself. And so that's why you see hints of this in the gospel of Jesus saying, look, I will do what Israel could never have done. I will be the light to the Gentiles. I'll be the one that that lets this leak out to others. And so he says, look, it's not right to take the children's bread. But she answered, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. You know what this scene says to us? It says, yeah, the situation may be worse than you feared. 
But grace reaches farther than you thought. Grace reaches farther than we thought. In that first moment of Jesus' arrival, the good news of a Messiah was at first supposed to be good news just for Israel. But Jesus is showing hints of this. He's saying, you know what? It's actually good news for the whole world. And in fact, that was the promise to Abraham, right? For for all of you who remember this, God said to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 14, I'm going to bless your family and through you, all the families will be blessed. The plan was always for blessing and grace to reach everyone. Israel kept building walls, metaphorically, to say we don't want the blessing to reach anyone else. And Jesus kept saying, but it's going to, because if you won't do it, I will sum up in myself the calling of Israel. Grace reaches farther than we thought. I don't know the mystery of how it works with God's election and our a choice and free will. I don't know the mystery of how those things work together. There's some of it that we have clarity on. There's some of it that seems remarkable. But you know what I see in the New Testament is that no one who asked for grace was ever denied it. No one who ever asked for grace was denied it. So, oh, where's your VIP card? Dallas Willard, the great um, Christian philosopher in California, passed away a few years ago, wrote The Divine Conspiracy. Willard would sort of be a little bit cheeky, and he would say it this way. He said, God will certainly let everyone into heaven that can possibly stand it. <laughs> if it's really God and his presence that you seek, God's, God will let everyone in who can possibly stand it. It's a little bit like what C.S. Lewis said. He says, those who end up in heaven are those who have, who have been living in it all along. They've been, lived, they've been putting first the kingdom anyway. They, they've been seeking God anyway. It's what they've been hungry for. And those who end up in that other place are those who've determined their life to, to be set against God all along anyway. But grace reaches farther than we think. We're always wanting to put up barriers and walls and fences to grace. I don't mean any political overtones by that. I, I just think it's a metaphor. We're always wanting to put up walls to say, no, grace can't reach them. Oh, grace can't reach them. And Jesus, this story is included in Mark. It's the only encounter of Jesus healing a Gentile in Mark's gospel. And it's included in there for us to know, you have no idea how far grace will reach. Let Jesus be the judge. Let Jesus surprise us. Let Jesus be the only one who is just and merciful. Yes, the situation is worse than we feared, but grace reaches farther than we think. The final scene of this chapter will start here in verse 31. And then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, the ten cities. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. You understand that in the first century, if you had any sort of disability, deaf, mute, whatever, you, just did, you weren't supposed to be around those people. You weren't supposed to lay a hand on them. Something about Jesus' reputation had already preceded him, and they wanted Jesus to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd, privately he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. 
And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he said, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They could not shut up about it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. There's so many things I love about this passage. But if the situation is worse than we feared, and if grace really does reach farther than we thought, then Jesus is better than we imagined. Jesus is better than we imagined. It says they were so, they were astonished beyond measure. They could not contain it. Wow. Jesus, we've heard some stories, but we had no idea. We had no idea how good you really are. You think about it, in the first story, food that was unclean, Jesus called clean. In the second story, people that were oppressed by an unclean spirit are now freed from that and made clean. Wounds here that left a man broken, Jesus makes whole. I was having lunch this week with one of New Life Downtowners, and he was just beautifully pointing out to me how Jesus doesn't override the frailty of our physicality. And I was thinking about that this week as I was reading the story. Jesus doesn't say to the man, listen man, you are a spirit, you have a soul, you just live in a body. So have your spirit command your body to line up with what it says. I don't know how many of you have heard this kind of stuff. It, it, it goes around in the charismatic circles. Okay? And we have this hierarchy of things where the body is just sort of, ah, who cares about the body, you know? And Jesus says, I care about the body. So much so that Jesus puts his hands on this man's ears, puts his fingers in his ears, touches his tongue. You know what that makes me think of? It makes me think of all the broken places in our life that our body actually carries. Memories, trauma, Wounds, emotions, fears, triggers, frail, we're frail, we're frail. One moment, we're awesome, one moment, we're at the bottom of the barrel. And Jesus doesn't come to us and say, hey, buck up, man, in your spirit you are blessed and highly favored. Let your body line up with the Spirit. <laughs> Jesus says, let me put my hands right on those wounds. Where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? Where's the pain? Where's the memory? Where's the trauma? Where does it hurt? It's like what I ask my kids when they come screaming after they bump their knee. Hey, 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 where does it hurt? Let me hold you. Let me kiss that wound. Where does it hurt? Jesus doesn't override the physicality of our beings. He didn't come to just save our souls so we could go to a bodiless eternity. He does all things well. 
He does all things well. All things well. Some of that stuff we don't see until we receive glorified bodies. I know that's true. Some of that stuff we don't fully realize until the kingdom arrives in fullness and everything is made new. But friends, I'm telling you, one day, one day when every tear is wiped away and death is no more and you receive resurrected, glorified bodies, one day with all the saints, we'll say, Jesus, you do all things well. You do all things well. I didn't understand the suffering on earth. I didn't understand the sorrow. I, I, I didn't get why I had to wrestle with this trauma or this pain or this issue. or this. I, I, I don't know why I lived with all of those. I, I don't know. But Jesus, you do all things well. Come on, church. That's who he is. Amen? Amen. I don't think we could ever get over that. Jesus the purifier is not Jesus the inspector with white gloves looking for dirt in your life. Jesus the purifier is the one who puts us back together again. He says, where does it hurt? Where is it out of alignment? How can I reorder you? The prayer for this Sunday in Lent is maybe my favorite prayer in the whole Anglican prayer book. I'm going to show it to you on the screen. We'll pray it later. But just look at these words. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order. Isn't that beautiful? You can't will yourself into the kind of purity that we really need. You can't will yourself into order. In fact, it says you alone can bring into order the unruly wills. And affections of sinners, you're like, no kidding. My affections are unruly sometimes. I love things that I shouldn't love. I love things too much that I shouldn't love that much. I'm just all over the place. And rather than God saying, I know, isn't it awesome? Be a mess. I feel like that's our sort of postmodern response is that the postmodern Jesus is also a mess and says, I know, isn't this great? But the old saints knew that Jesus neither ignores our mess nor condemns us for it. Instead, he brings into order the unruly affections of sinners. Thanks be to God. And then the prayer goes on and says, so grant your people grace so that we can love what you command. We know you've given us commands. We know you've you've, you've told us to live a certain way. But God, we don't just want to obey the commands. We want to love what you command. Come on, church. That's the gospel, right? An overhaul from the inside. Love what you command and desire what you promise. I know what I would pray for. I would pray to never have hardship or suffering. But but Jesus, you've promised something better. Help me to not only love what you command, but actually desire what you promise. Come on. That among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Don't you want that this morning, church? That amidst all of the ups and downs of the world, our hearts are fixed 
only where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Would you bow your heads this morning?